Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Hey everyone, welcome to Millennial Learns. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, today we're going to go into a bit of a history lesson, which I haven't actually done a lot of podcasts like this. Um, I did the history of Purim, but that was kind of a side product of um, researching Esther. I didn't really know I was going to go down the Purim history route during that one. So um, that was exciting to just kind of be led into that. But for this one, I don't really know why I started thinking about about this, but um, I think it was just because like drinking is so prolific now um, at work. We have like happy hours and stuff like that. Um, and it's just kind of accepted as something really normal. And I was thinking about like how some drugs like weed and, and stuff like that are starting to be legalized in different states and kind of why alcohol is considered better. It seems to have a lot of negative health effects. Um, but anyway, all this led me to prohibition because I knew that the prohibition era era was one where alcohol was made illegal. Um, and that is kind of where I started. Now I'll, I'll just go into what I thought about prohibition before, because I realized I really knew nothing. Um, what I thought I knew before researching was I think I knew that it was around the twenties, like the 20s era, kind of Great Depression sort of time period. Um, but I really thought it lasted like a year tops. So I thought it got passed as a law, uh, was accepted uh, nationwide, but I thought it was immediately very, very unpopular and it was a complete disaster and it got revoked within like a year. That's was my idea of prohibition. So I quickly learned that this is actually not the case and I'll go into all the research and the historical facts that I, I learned, but I was like way off on, on some of these. So let's get right into it. Um, so we are going to start with what prohibition is. As I said, it's an era of American history where alcohol was not allowed to be sold or manufactured. So prohibition was passed as the 18th amendment in the U S constitution and it was ratified January 16th, 1919. So they gave it a year for it to go into effect so everyone can kind of prepare, which I think is pretty common for amendments, um, but it actually went into effect on January 17th, 1920. So in the actual, and I'll get into this a little bit more, but in the amendment, the amendment is super, super short. So it's only 111 words. And it basically says the manufacture and sale of liquor is or distilled spirits is um, illegal, but it left a lot, a lot, a lot of open-ended questions because it's so short. There was a lot of clar- kind of clarifying to do to see really what the rules were, what the punishments were, all of that. Um, and so the Volstead Act went into effect in 1920 in order to help enforce um, the 18th Amendment, which was prohibition. So let's look at the history of prohibition and how it actually came to be an amendment, because this is where I really had the most misconception about, I guess, about how it came to be, because I always heard prohibition was such a disaster that I figured everyone must have not been on board, which actually in hindsight doesn't make any sense, because at that time, to, in order to make an amendment to the Constitution, which I knew prohibition was, you needed a three-quarters 
buy-in from like all the states. So states needed to ratify it. Um, and so three quarters of the states needed to ratify it basically. So that would suggest that most of America would be on board if a new amendment was passed. But that's kind of just not the impression I got um, from my little knowledge about the prohibition before. So we're going to back all the way up to 1802, which is about 120 years before um, prohibition was passed. So in 1802, um, Native American chief Little Turtle and a group of Quakers actually requested for Congress. They submitted a formal request to Congress to authorize the president to, quote, take such measures from time to time to prevent or restrain the vending or distribution of spiritus liquors among all or any of the Indian tribes. So there was a push in the 1800s, kind of not surprisingly, honestly, by the Quakers who saw it as a religious um, kind of issue, but they were, uh, there was a lot of buy-in from the Native American tribes um, and because they saw that alcohol was starting to be a problem, I think, um, it sounds like they wanted to kind of nip it in the bud a little bit. So Congress actually got that request and they did pass um, a bill that authorized the president to, to do that. So then we move into the 1820s, 30s, around that time, there was a lot of re religious revivalism um, the article I saw called it. So that was popular in the, in the United States. And that movement actually increased the call for temperance. And it was also responsible for things like the abolitionist movement. So it was very, it was very religious and, and faith-based and they wanted sins basically to be illegal. So alcohol and slavery. Um, so those were interestingly like both uh, involved in the same movement, which I guess makes sense, but I didn't really put those together because so many Christians nowadays uh, are pretty fine with drinking, but way back in the 1820s and 30s, that was really not the case. So along those lines in 1838, both Maine and Massachusetts passed laws banning the sale of liquor in less than 15 gallons, which I thought this was so interesting. So I looked up why this was a law and essentially they wanted to reduce the availability of spirits by making people buy basically a ton of it. So like if you didn't have a lot of money or if you, if it was just inconvenient, like they wanted to make it inconvenient for people to buy liquor. So even though it was um, like you had to buy a lot, which seems counterintuitive, like it was such a, a pain and so hard to buy that people would buy less. So Two states did that in 1938. You could not buy alcohol or you couldn't buy liquor, like hard liquor in anything, in any quantity less than 15 gallons, which is, uh, which is very interesting because imagine bringing like 15 gallons of liquor home. That would be crazy. And then part of the reason why they did this is because they wanted to like not have alcoholism or not encourage alcoholism. But imagine like being an alcoholic and then you had to buy liquor and you got your hands on liquor, but you had to get 15 gallons. Like that's probably way, way worse. But anyway, so eventually that law got repealed, um, at least in Massachusetts, uh, but it did become a precedent for, for other states and other laws. There was uh, the Maine law, which went into effect in 1851. Um, that was the first statewide prohibition for production and sale. So 
Maine was really leading the charge in like any temperance law. They did the 15 gallon one and then they did the first statewide prohibition. So no one could produce or sell in Maine. Now, interestingly enough, actually drinking was not against the law, which carries on in a lot of these other laws. It was never actually a law against drinking. It was a law against selling and manufacturing. So that was really weird. Like in speakeasies, I assumed that the people that were kind of at risk were the people drinking in the speakeasy, but it was really like the seller um, and the vendor of speakeasies. After the main law went to in into effect, kind of more and more states uh, started adding temperance laws and they all, all varied. So it, it was just becoming a trend. And with this religious movement growing in the United States, it really became much more popular throughout the 1800s. So in 1880, Kansas was the first state to have a constitutional amendment for statewide prohibition. So not only was it just a law passed in the state, but they actually put it in their state's constitution to make it even harder to ever repeal. And they were very fair. You'll see Kansas throughout this is another one that is very um, committed to prohibition. Ten years after that, Kansas uh, amendment went in. The Wilson Act was passed. This was a groundbreaking because it really had to do with the distribution and sale of alcohol between state lines and what kind of what the individual's rights were with imports and exports uh, versus the states. So before the Wilson Act was passed, states could only prohibit the import of something into their state if it was not sellable. So they could only reject a product from being imported if it was something like rotting meat or... Um, yeah, basically if something was rotten or not eatable or something like that. But the Wilson Act um, made it so that states could prohibit the import of alcohol. Each individual state could import or could prohibit the import of alcohol to its own state. But it was very specific. It couldn't do it in all situations. It was only when the control was a police measure, which sounds like that's not super often. This went all the way up to the Supreme Court, and there they decided and they held that a state can still not prevent individual inhabitants from importing alcohol and consuming it on their own. It can prohibit someone from importing alcohol if they have intent to sell, so like a store owner, let's say, or anyone going to distribute it. But if you are importing it by yourself and then drinking it on your own, then that is allowed and the state cannot tell you to not do that. Um, and that law is actually still in effect today. So all that to say, those were some of the landmark cases, but temperance laws were very, very common by the 1900s, which again, I had no idea. I really thought that like a ton of people were drinking and I guess I assumed that so many people were drinking. It was such a problem that some geniuses in Congress were like, let's just make it illegal. And then it got passed, which is clearly not how laws uh, work. But they were very common by the 1900s because a lot of people were actually very on board. There was a organization um, that was developed in the late 1800s called the Anti-Saloon League uh, that was established in 1893. And, you know, they, they went around and kind of rallied against uh, saloons and alcohol and advocated for prohibition. But in 1906 specifically, they opened a new wave of attacks on the sale of liquor. So... It was driven by a couple things. According to the article I 
read, which all of these articles are going to be linked in the show notes as usual. Um, but it was really driven again by evangelicals and Protestantism, um, and their view on drinking and, and saloon culture as a sin. So that was a big, there was a big, big religious component to this. Um, it was also driven by urban growth and a lot of the drinking was fueled by being in urban areas. The rural areas were usually very on board with prohibition and they saw, I think they, I think it's because they saw the effects of like, you know, the stereotype of the town drunk. Um, they saw the bad effects of alcohol, uh, kind of more up close, I would think. Um, so you can kind of see when, um, something I read said that the rural areas were usually followed the, the prohibition laws pretty well, but in urban areas, it was much harder to enforce and, and way less people wanted the rules anyway. So they tended to not follow them, but a big explosion in urban growth really also led to an explosion in saloon culture and alcohol use. So in 1913, the Webb Kenyon act passed, and this was kind of just a clarification law, but it had very big repercussions. So this was a law that supported statewide prohibition against alcohol. And if you remember, I said that the Wilson act that was passed before was very specific and there were a lot of loopholes in that act. So this Webb Kenyon act actually eliminated the loopholes in the Wilson act. So it prohibited interstate shipment or transportation of alcohol if it was in violation of any state territory or district law. So basically said like, if your state doesn't have this as legal, you can't import it. So it's kind of a crackdown on just stricter prohibition laws. I should also mention blue laws, which are actually a lot of them are in, in place today. So a blue law is like, if you can't do something on a Sunday because of religion. Um, so there were a lot, I mean, there's a lot of different flavors of blue laws and there were a lot back in the 1800s and 1900s, but in terms of alcohol, the blue laws that were um, in place prevented the sale of alcohol on Sundays. So um, now a lot of these that still exist are challenged and brought to the courts. And there's a precedent now that these laws are unconstitutional. So um, there's still some in effect, but most of them are just because they haven't been challenged. If they are challenged, they're usually overturned today. The other thing I found interesting that was mentioned was that women were a big part in the temperance movement. This is because a lot more women, you know, stayed home and worked in the home. They didn't, um, I guess most didn't have jobs outside the home. And so, it, so if someone's husband drank, um, it would be much more destructive because that was like the only income and it would just cause problems at home. And so a lot of women were more vocal about being for the prohibition movement. The other big group that was very, very for prohibition was factory owners because they saw that alcohol led to a lot of accidents and lower um, efficiency levels with their workers. So they wanted prohibition because they thought that it would increase their efficiency and their safety in factories as the industrial revolution was happening and factories were becoming very popular. So we are leading right up to the actual time of prohibition, which I thought was very, very interesting. This is like this is like the perfect example of when something that's temporary because of a war or an emergency or something just becomes permanent. 
So Woodrow Wilson was the president in 1917 as we were going into World War I, and he actually issued a temporary prohibition rule or order to save grain for producing food. Because we were going to war, it was important to ration food, and alcohol was deemed less important than food, obviously. And so that was a temporary prohibition. Well, at the same time, Congress submitted it as an amendment, which was also in the same year of 1917. They gave a seven-year limit to get the needed number of states to ratify the law um, so that it could become part of the Constitution. So, two things. I thought that the seven-year limit was so long. Like, I didn't know that when you were submitting an amendment that you could even have it be on the table for that long. So, they gave it seven years. And then, also, an important thing to to know is at the time, and this has changed since then, but at the time, you needed three-quarters of the states on board and have the law ratified by three quarters of the states. So in that time, there were 48 states and you needed 36 out of 48 to ratify it for it to become federal law. So again, they gave it seven years, but it was so popular. The idea of prohibition was so popular that they got the approval of those 36 states in only 11 months, which is so fast um, because people thought that this was going to take years and years and years. So I don't think people thought it was going to happen that quickly at all. So that became a law, an amendment, but states can continue to ratify it on their own, like as a state law up until, you know, even after it's federal law. So more states continue to ratify up until 1922, which was the, the last uh, time a state ratified. There were actually two states that never ratified the, the amendment, which was Connecticut and Rhode Island. They never accepted it even after it became federal law, which is interesting. Out of all of them, I'm not sure I would have picked Connecticut and Rhode Island as uh, one of the ones, as, as the two that um, wouldn't ratify, but so I thought that was interesting. So it was officially ratified and made an amendment in on January 16th, 1919, and it went into effect one year later. Um, like I said, it's very, very short. It has 111 words in the entire law, and it was very vague. So there were many questions. Basically, it says, like, it's prohibiting intoxicating liquors. Well, what does that mean? Uh, what is the punishment if you do sell or manufacture? What about the um, sell punishment for drinking? What about religious use? Like, the Catholic Church uses wine in their actual religious ceremony, so they were worried about that. And again, I said that they were popular, but it was actually 33 states already had their own prohibition laws by the time this was passed, which explains um, really why it was ratified so quickly. So in October of 1919, which would have been just a few months before um, the actual amendment was set to go in, into effect in early January of 1920, the Congress passed the National Prohibition Act, which the purpose of this National Prohibition Act um, was to clarify the rules of enforcement, uh, be, like because it was so, because the amendment was so vague. Um, passing this National Prohibition Act served to clarify the enforcement and all the questions that we had listed. It was a much longer document that really broke down 
kind of the enforcement, punishment, uh, all the, the rules, what, what defines an intoxicating liquor, stuff like that. But, I mean, it was still very comp- complicated, and it sounds like it was contradicting itself a lot. So there were a lot of challenges to this law and a lot of clarifications as time went on. So the National Prohibition Act was written by Wayne Wheeler, uh, who was a part of the Anti-Saloon League that I mentioned earlier, and that's why the um, the wording of the act is very, very strict, because he is, I mean, he was part of, like, a league that really, really wanted prohibition. So it was a very strict enforcement. That act has actually become known as the Volstead Act because... Um, a man named Andrew Volstead, who was in Congress, actually was the sponsor and really advocated for the passing of this act. And it's funny because one of the articles I read just said that even though he sponsored it and like helped guide it through Congress, he privately drank a lot. So he um, apparently there was a lot of hypocrisy all throughout the passing and enforcement in the time of prohibition where people would drink privately, but then say um, that alcohol should be banned, especially in Congress. So that's not fun. Um, but that became known as the Volstead Act. Now, the funny thing about the Volstead Act is that since it clarified, let's say, what intoxicating liquors were, there were a lot of people that supported prohibition and the 18th amendment and they voted to ratify this law um, because they assumed when the amendment was written that intoxicating liquors basically meant hard alcohol. So a lot of people had assumed that beer and wine were still going to be okay, that they were still going to be allowed. But then the Volstead Act came out and was passed by Congress and that prohibited any alcohol. So Um, A lot of people, once that came out and once um, the actual amendment was about to go into effect, were like, oh, this is not what we thought. And and a lot of people kind of started already to kind of question it because they still wanted to drink beer and wine. So like I kind of mentioned, enforcement was very, very hard. Um, Originally, it was supposed to be enforced by that by the IRS, which seems like a very not obvious choice. So it ended up getting transferred to the Justice Department and the Bureau of Prohibition, which was set up specifically to enforce prohibition. Um, It was enforced better in rural towns because they were already much more on board. Um, They tended to be the more religious people. And so um, they were, you know, it was more easily enforced and mostly because they were already kind of compliant and they wanted prohibition. It was way more loosely enforced in urban areas because it was just, there weren't that, I mean, even though the Volstead Act was passed, there were still not um, super, super clear rules about enforcement. There were speakeasies that popped up, which is just places that um, alcohol was served um, kind of underground or there would be like hidden away and people would just know about these speakeasies and go and drink. Um, even though it was obviously illegal at that time, people would also bootleg, which is like the illegal manufacturing of, um, hard liquor. And then another challenge of prohibition was that it was super confusing. Even again, even after the Volstead Act, since it was so convoluted and kind of contradicting, it was very confusing for everyone to understand what the rules actually were because it prohibited the selling of alcohol, but not the buying or the drinking. Um, you could legally buy alcohol with a doctor's prescription because they used to actually prescribe alcohol from doctors. So people were confused if that was allowed or not. 
they also didn't know what a valid religious purpose was because the Catholic Church used it, but could you just say, oh, I'm religious, I'm going to drink a bunch of wine now because it's my religion? That was kind of a gray area. And then again, um, it was confusing because a lot of people thought that they were on board for having beer and wine still, and turns out those were illegal now. So there was kind of anger and confusion all at one there when the Volstead Act came out. So despite all the problems with it, there was actually some really good early success in in the beginning, like once it came out. So there was a decline in arrest for drunkenness, and there was a 30% drop in alcohol uh, consumption. So for the majority of the population, it, it worked, but it really backfired for people who did not want to quit drinking. Um, and that's what I've heard about. So like, that's the history that I remember learning about why it was such kind of a disaster, because I just heard that people started just doing it illegally all the time, like making and drinking um, alcohol constantly. So people became very, very innovative and inventive with how they were making and hiding and drinking alcohol. Um, there were, again, bootlegging and speakeasies popping up all over the place. There was a lot of smuggling alcohol across state lines. And then there was a big rise in gang violence, which I don't know. I guess I don't, I just don't know anything about gangsters, but I didn't know Al Capone made all of his money off of like prohibition, um, and, and all that. So there was a, a big rise in gang violence, Al Capone being, um, part of that. And, and then there was actually a, a massacre in 1929 called the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which was in Chicago. Um, and some men dressed up as police who they think were associated with Al Capone, um, shot and killed a group from a different gang. So there were a lot of these fights that, that broke out between gangs and there was a huge rise in criminal activity. And that's probably the history that a lot of people are more familiar with, um, where, that's all the negative sides of prohibition. So if you notice that massacre happened in 1929 and the actual bill got passed in 1919, went into effect in 1920, but that is like 10 years of prohibition, which is already like 10 times more than I thought. So this went on for a really long time. And so when it said early success, that was like the first year or two. But as people realized that this was kind of sticking around, the bootlegging and the speakeasies and all the criminal activity became more and more apparent as this time went on. So then there was a law called the Jones's Law, which increased the penalties of any, um, which increased the penalties of any violation in the in the Volstead Act. So it turned everything in the Volstead Act from mist from a misdemeanor to a felony, which is crazy. Um, you could spend three years in prison for being caught drinking. Um, even something like seeing a violation and then not reporting it and someone, and then someone finding out that you knew about it. Um, that's also a felony and you could spend three years in prison. So like everything was three years in prison and everything was a felony on your record. So, um, that was a, a bit extreme. There was a lot of backlash on that because it was too severe and it didn't really help. Like people just kept doing it because it was too severe, essentially. By 1925, enforcement was not working. And so some states did individual laws within their state lines to try to um, enforce it better or make the punishment worse. So Indiana prohibited 
uh, alcohol for any reason in their bone dry law because they were just done. Like even religious use, um, you couldn't do doctors prescription. You couldn't have that was in 1925. So they just blanketly said, there's no exceptions. You cannot have any alcohol. Oklahoma did a similar thing where they just targeted religious use. Um, the Catholic church challenged it, but this was in effect until 1959, which I thought was so crazy. Like that's a long time to not let the Catholic church use wine basically. Um, but that's what happened. So yeah, Catholic church in Oklahoma only got that right in 1959. So yeah, so a lot of those sort of popping up kind of like mid 1920s in different states and they all uh, just were really trying to enforce it better uh, basically. So then things are starting to kind of crumble for prohibition. Um, by the end, by like the end of the 1920s, support was really, really waning for for prohibition in general. People who didn't want to quit drinking would just keep buying it, but they had to buy the bootlegged version, which was super expensive because it's hard to make and it's illegal. It's obviously a risk. So the working class and the poor were very, were feeling it if they want, didn't want to quit drinking. And then there were a lot of like fundamentalist Christians and nativists that kind of took the temperance movement and gained control of it. And they became just way more extreme. So the moderates were more alienated and the moderates, a lot of moderates then wanted some sort of compromise. So they thought, okay, well, prohibition isn't working for every single alcohol, but maybe we could have like lower alcohol, like beer and wine, three, two beer, stuff like that. So it was really, really waning by the end of the, the 20s. Um, a lot of people started to turn against prohibition. So then fast forward to 1933, the Blaine Act was passed, which basically began the process of repealing the 18th Amendment. So it was a joint resolution that proposed an amendment to the Constitution, and it permitted states to form conventions that could ratify an appeal, a repeal amendment. So you can't just repeal an amendment. You have to make a new amendment that says that you're repealing the last one. So that kind of set the stage and that was a big signal that that it was happening, the end was, was near. So FDR ran for president in 1932 and part of his platform was repealing prohibition. So he won and then in 1933, uh, Congress adopted a resolution that proposed the 21st amendment that would repeal the 18th. Part of the reason too, I mean, it wasn't just that it wasn't working, that there was crime. Part of the reason also was that the Great Depression was happening at this time. And so it was pretty undeniable by a certain point in the Great Depression that if the sale and manufacture of liquor was was then legalized, there would be a lot of jobs that were created and a lot of revenue that could be generated by tax by taxes. So it was a, also a strategy to get out of the Great Depression, which I didn't even know these two overlapped, <laughs> but um, turns out the Great Depression was a large reason for um, the end of prohibition coming very quickly. So people thought that actually repealing the um, full amendment was going to take years. Again, things kind of move slow when it's an actual amendment because so many states have to uh, vote for it for it to pass. Um, but in the meantime, 
Congress passed the Cullen-Harrison Act, which was again passed before prohibition was actually repealed because there was a lot of support to at least allow lower alcohol content beverages um, to be manufactured and sold. And they thought that repealing the full amendment would take so long. So they said, well, if we can't get the full thing repealed, let's just make an exception and say that lower alcohol content um, drinks are allowed. So FDR, because he had then been elected, um, said that this was the highest priority and Congress moved very fast. So the president signed the Colin Harrison Act into law on March 22nd, 1933. And that actually went into effect only two weeks later on April 7th of 1933. Actually, fun fact, April 7th is now National Beer Day, which I don't know about you. I always thought that some of those national days uh, were extremely silly and like kind of really not based on anything. There's like National Pizza Day, National Taco Day. And I don't know, I figured a lot of them were silly. And I thought National Beer Day was probably like that, but that's actually a very important date because that's when beer was allowed again in the United States, which April 7th, 1933. So maybe go get a beer on that day. It's, it's, uh, it's just about a week away at the time this episode comes out. So good timing. Uh, but then in December of 1933, which was only about six months after, or no, eight months after the Colin Harrison Act was passed, in December 1933, Utah was the 36th state and the last needed state to vote to ratify the repeal amendment, and that was ratified. So it was repealed in December of 1933. The repealing amendment is even shorter than the amendment that banned alcohol. It only took 10 months to ratify and that was ratified December 5th. So maybe December 5th should be like hard liquor day or something because that's when that became legal. So the other misconception I had before researching this was I thought that prohibition, when that amendment, when that 18th amendment was repealed and the repeal amendment became the 21st amendment, I thought that that meant that alcohol was then just blankly like blanketly legal after that. But that isn't what it means. It just said it wasn't prohibited. So each state could still decide um, for itself what its prohibition laws were. And a lot of states actually continued with prohibition until much later. Um, and surprisingly, Mississippi was the last dry state and it had it continued with prohibition until 1966 within Mississippi state borders. So it's actually like, it hasn't been that long that alcohol has been legal in Mississippi. It's only been about 50 years, um, which is very surprising to me. The prohibition time has a lot of bleed over as well into today. We have still a lot of dry laws that are decided by city or county within, within a lot of states um, because the power of this can be brought down to a single uh, city within a county or a single county. So there's actually some counties that are all dry, but have a city in the middle of that county that is a, quote, wet city, um, which means alcohol is allowed. So uh, in Kentucky, 31 of the 120 counties uh, are dry. It is a class D misdemeanor to have or to sell booze. Um, 37 of the 75 Arkansas counties are dry, 24 of 67 Alabama counties are dry, um, but all those counties that are dry in Alabama have a wet city um, within the dry county, all but one. So very interesting how it can change within municipalities 
like a city can have alcohol, but that overall county can't. I, this is interesting. I, I never really realized until I guess COVID that counties can make their own rules like that, where like, like for COVID at least, you know, Denver would be on a code red and they would prohibit, you know, you'd have to have masks even outside, but then you'd come down to like Elbert County, which is way more rural and they don't have any of those laws. So I didn't really notice the, I guess, dynamic between counties and the power that each individual county had until COVID, but you see that a lot throughout the history of prohibition. Um, in Texas, between the years of 2004 and 2012, 450 uh, dry municipalities in Texas became wet. So they all voted to allow alcohol. So 12 states prohibit the sale of hard liquor on Sundays. Indiana allows no alcohol at all to be sold on Sundays. Uh, Kansas... Kansas is interesting. So like I said, Kansas is a key player in this. Um, but Kansas has a rule where you cannot buy any alcohol on holidays, like Memorial Day, Labor Day, Independence Day, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter, which is very odd because half of those I feel like are drinking holidays. <laughs> like, um, in, like Independence Day, the 4th of July. I feel like so many people drink on the 4th of July. And yeah, in Kansas, you are not allowed to buy alcohol on that day. Um, Oklahoma was very, very reluctant to repeal prohibition. They only repealed it, the blanket one that says no alcohol at all. They repealed that in 1959. So again, like it's been 60 years. That's pretty much it. But even when they repealed prohibition, they kept very, very strict limits. 3-2 beer was allowed, but anything above 3.2 was considered hard liquor and it could only be sold at room temperature in a state regulated liquor store. And that was the same for wine as well. It was only in 1984 that they actually let bars and nightclubs sell liquor by the drink, which I, that just blows my mind. 84 is so recent and you couldn't buy a, you couldn't buy liquor by the drink in a nightclub. So Prohibition had a really long-lasting effect in some in certain states, and Oklahoma is one of those. So before 2016, any um, craft brewery in Oklahoma had to use a wholesaler to sell anything above a 3.2 beer. So like anything with a higher alcohol content than 3.2. In 2016, that changed so they could finally sell beer with a higher alcohol content on site without a wholesaler, which is... I mean, that was five years ago. They couldn't do that. They had to have a wholesaler. So Oklahoma is very uh, strict on it. But it's interesting because a lot of, because the rules have been so, so strict um, with prohibition and with all this alcohol regulation, Oklahoma actually accounts for about 50% of all the 3-2 beer that is sold or bought Um in the United States. Oklahoma is a huge producer of 3-2 beer because they that's the only beer that's like freely allowed to be sold um, up until really 2016. As a fun fact, since we're talking about rules that are still in place today, um, making gin in a bathtub is still a felony under federal law. So it's legal to make wine and beer at home, but like running an old-fashioned still, they said, is still legal, which includes making gin in a bathtub, which happened a lot during Prohibition. So if you're thinking about gin, don't make it in your bathtub. Um, 
But so this, I saw this article that talked about the legacy of prohibition and I have some questions on it because basically it said before prohibition in 1920, the average American drank 2.6 gallons of liquor a year or of alcohol a year that dropped in the early years of prohibition. It dropped a lot, but then after it was repealed and all of that, but then prohibition got repealed and uh, people kind of started returning to normal, but it didn't actually return to pre-prohibition drinking levels until 1973. So it took a while for us to get back up to our 2.6 gallons a year. Um, but then after a little plateau in there, since the mid eighties, the drinking level has been falling and it's now 2.2 gallons a year. So we still drink less than, than prohibition. Although I don't know if we can count that as a legacy of prohibition, like the article claims, because we did go back up to pre-prohibition drinking levels in the 70s, um, and then we just went back down. So I think the going back down after the 70s is probably some other cultural shifts that happened and not necessarily a legacy of prohibition. Um, but we did have lower drinking levels for a, for a long time. Um, after prohibition got repealed for about 40 years. So that's all I had about the history of prohibition. Since this is a Christian kind of and history podcast, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on kind of my views on Christians and alcohol. So this is a touchy subject because like I said, um, you know, the Catholic church drinks alcohol in their services a lot of Protestants that I know drink, um, and kind of the classic answer that I've heard in Christian circles is to is that drinking is fine, but not drinking to the point of getting drunk because there are Bible verses. It's many places in the Bible that you should not be drunk. Basically, you should be of sound mind and, and not be drunk. But um, and also that Jesus made water into wine. So like if he made water into wine and was drinking wine, then it's not a sin for us to. However, I also listen to the Unashamed podcast, which is the cast of Duck Dynasty, and I love their family, but I listen to their podcast a lot. And Jace Robertson had, I think, the best take on it that I've ever heard, which was he's not opposed to drinking. He tends to not drink because, you know, it's just something he's I think he's just never been interested in really, um, and he didn't feel need. But he has a really great kind of personal um, rule about it, where if he's in a big group and many, many people are drinking, like let's say he was at some group gathering and kind of most people are getting alcohol, in those situations, even though he can, he's freely allowed to drink under the law, like it's not a sin, he wouldn't have to ask for forgiveness for having a beer. Um, he's freely allowed to, to have a drink. He won't because there's also something that says, do not let, or do not lead others to stumble. And so he always assumes that someone else in the crowd, if there's someone else that is trying not to drink or doesn't want to, um, or something like that, he doesn't drink in those group scenarios and those group situations so that if someone else is trying not to, they, they have someone who basically is also not drinking. So he's under no obligation to not, but he just decides not to because he might be a stumbling block to others. 
Also, if he's drinking and people see that he's drinking and they're not good at like controlling how much they have, um, he could lead others to stumble. So I think that is really good to be aware of. I mean, I know everyone's kind of responsible for their own, but it is helpful if you're in that situation and you either know that someone is not, is trying to not drink or they tend to kind of overdo it if they start drinking or something like that. I think it is good to keep in mind how your actions are coming off to others because yeah, even though we're all responsible for our own stuff, it's good to help other people where you can. And it also, I think part of it is that it helps him stand out as the kind of as the Christian, as a Christian. And it starts a, to- like a topic of conversation. Um, cause he's not like an alcoholic or anything. And most of the time when people are drinking in a group setting, it's like, Oh, why aren't you drinking? And then the people assume that you're like reco- a recovering alcoholic and he's not at all. But yeah, I just thought that was a good a good take on it that I had never heard. Like I always hear, yeah, you can drink, um, just don't get drunk because getting drunk is a sin. But I never hear like really how your drinking could affect others, how it's perceived by other people. And um, so, yeah, I have not been good at that. Like in a group setting, I would probably tend to drink if everyone else was having a drink. Um, so anyway, I like that. That was food for thought. I'm not saying this in any way because I have mastered that or I've done that very much. Um, but it is something that I now would like to keep in mind because I heard, um, Jay say it and I thought it was a great point. So this is also a good argument for modesty, like Christian woman modesty, because a lot of people get offended by this. Um, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are on a team. We know that it's hard for guys to not lust. They're more visual and stuff. So if you're walking around very super immodestly, it's going to be harder and that could lead a guy to stumble. Now, yes, they're responsible for their own like lust and sin and all that stuff. Um, so it's ultimately on guys, but it's not a crime to help out. Like if you know that something helps, it's probably good to do that. And it's like what Jace was saying with alcohol. Like you don't have to make it harder for someone. You don't want to lead someone into stumbling. So, um, God calls us to kind of be modest and help out our brothers in Christ, just like Jesus is helping his brothers in Christ with people who, um, may have an alcohol problem or something like that. So, um, I just think it's always good and something that I haven't really, I guess, thought of too much, um, which I'm trying to focus on now is how, our actions with things like drinking and modesty are helping or hurting other people. Um, and I think we just so focus on our own drinking, our own lust, our own modesty, and not really how it's affecting others. So that's just a food for thought little segment at the end of this episode and the tangent I wanted to go on. Um, but I thought it was kind of helpful and something that I think I, uh, will want to focus on in the future more. Anyway, That is all for the history and legacy of prohibition, what the alcohol rules are now. Um, Some of them were very interesting. And if you did that math between when uh, prohibition was put into law, which was 1919, and when it was repealed in 1933, that is 14 years of prohibition. I couldn't even imagine if they passed a law now like that, and then it lasted 14 years. Like, No wonder it failed because I feel like that would go south very quickly. But 
um, yeah, I thought it was a year and it turned out to be 14. So, uh, very interesting stuff. I hope you guys learned a lot. Uh, leave a review on, make sure to leave a review on Apple podcasts. If you, um, enjoyed the episode, I would love to hear your feedback. Go to DM me on Instagram. Um, all this is in my outro, but I thought I would reiterate. I hope everyone has an amazing week and thank you again for listening. Bye. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our millennial learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode and DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a millennial learns. Go check me out. Follow me, DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday. Thank you.